back. Welcome back to the podcast. This is a short little mini-sode, a tweener, <laughs> um, covering a very, very important topic. You know, it's Black History Month. We know that black mortality, maternal mortality in the United States, well, probably all around, black mortality is higher for a variety of reasons that I won't get into, but I'm sure you know. Um, living in the United States, which has a thread of racism woven into its very fabric and always has is um, a cause for quite a bit of distress amongst um, black birth workers, black birthing families, and really your everyday average woman or man who has uh, darker skin than the typical pasty white skin you find here in Kentucky. And this chronic stresses it leads to a variety of different health outcomes and chronic diseases and whatnot. You could look at this as, uh, you know, the, the paucity of quality foods. You could look at this through the lens of food deserts. I remember a good friend of mine, the gangster gardener in, um, in L.A. Uh, oh, it's Ron's last name. Well, you know, the gangster gardener, if you just look him up, he's been on Rogan. He's, he's a pretty tremendous human. And um, my wife and I got to know him in L.A. And, and he was trying to grow food on a corner in, like, the Compton area. And uh, people would ask him, like, why are you, you know, growing all this food? I mean, aren't you worried somebody's going to take it? He's like, that's the damn point, <laughs> which I love about that guy. Um, his last name will come to me. If you're listening, Ron, hello. Um, yeah, there's a lack of access to important resources and this is like ubiquitous across the world but it's especially relevant to the United States where we have more money and more power to make changes. Uh, Ron Finley, that's his name, it just came to me. Um, we have the ability to make changes but we're instead the policies that we're making are actually hurting black families for the most part. And I'm not talking about like immigration laws and gun violence and all that, like that's all relevant. But we're talking about birth, like that's my world is birth and the management, prevention, mitigation of chronic disease. And the reality is like, it's not a comfortable reality, but the reality is that if you have darker skin, then you're, you're uh, subject to a lot of um, misery at the hands of, in many hospitals, not every hospital, but many hospitals. And you may even live in an area that is predominantly black but lacks access to quality maternity units or neonatal intensive care units. So all of this to say that uh, there are certain states that perform worse than other states. California has some of the best maternity statistics and several states in the deep south have some of the worst maternity statistics. And we're looking at like very, very basic metrics, right? Uh, NICU admission, uh, neonatal death, IUFD, the likelihood of a woman dying while giving birth, giving birth, C-section rates, like these things should be easy to change with how much money we spend on healthcare, but it's not getting better for many, many states. In particular, states like Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, Florida, really, really bad maternity outcomes if you're just looking at it, of course, through the lens of like just those metrics, but even the comprehensive experience of, of getting pregnant, growing a baby, having your baby, getting support postpartum, like all of that is harder 
if you're a woman of color, specifically a non-Hispanic black woman. Occasionally, somebody will reach out to me, and it's usually a midwife. And, you know, it'll be something like, hey, there is a bill that has been proposed in our state government, our state senate, for example, that is going to restrict, further restrict access to midwives. And in the Deep South, traditional midwifery runs deep. Traditional midwifery is different from professional midwifery, so to speak, um, using terms that have been co-opted by the state, of course, in that it is, uh, generally speaking, a practice that was developed over many generations and passed down through lineages, through apprenticeship. Um, these were the wisdom keepers for time immemorial. And um, many traditional midwives are black. And so any licensing restrictions, or even having licensing at all, might prohibit the practice, the autonomous practice of midwifery. And we see this in every state. There are certain dilemmas in almost every state. But in the Deep South, getting improving access to, to traditional midwives is going to be extremely important to improve maternity statistics when a majority of the population, especially women of color, are living in rural areas without access to a well-funded, well-funded, well-staffed hospital. So when this a midwife in Mississippi reached out recently, she said, Dr. Riley, I hope you can help. You know, in my infinite free time, she was asking if I would dedicate some time to writing a letter to the Senator, Senator Kevin Blackwell of Mississippi, who had proposed a bill, SB 2080, I believe is what it is, which was, it's, it's also known as Martin's Law, which was named, unfortunately, these, these bills are oftentimes named after babies, black babies that have died. And the effort there, or the, the intention there, is to um, improve the care of women giving birth through restricting who can attend to births, right? This is a common theme. This is not new. I'm not gonna get into the history of that. If you would like the history of that, there's plenty of other interviews I've done on this podcast where we get into that, um, namely those conversations with people like Savannah Brown, who's the National Director of Restore Forward, and um, which is a, a, a branch of Black Women's Blueprint. Savannah and I have gotten to be good friends. We traveled to South Africa together under her tutelage and um, sat with some traditional midwives in South Africa, and Savannah's black, she's a doula, and um, she and I have gotten to be good friends because I think she and I see eye to eye on a lot of these things. And, you know, as a white man who, I guess if anything, I guess I'm Christian, I, I don't go to, I'm not religious, I don't go to a Christian church, but I do think that there's some virtues and values in Christianity as it was originally, uh, practiced or or conveyed you know years and years and years ago i don't think organized religion has done much good for our world but again i'm not going to get into that in this episode but as a white man who people would probably presume is christian um i'm straight i'm uh, i've got resources and i've got a lot of education i think it's important that we people like me white OBGYNs, white male OBGYNs, maybe in particular stand up and, and, and acknowledge that 
when these types of bills are proposed, their passage can only do harm in, in a variety of settings around the country, namely rural communities in the Deep South where black women want to be cared for by women who look like them, who have a lived experience that reflects their own. And so I felt compelled to help this midwife when she reached out. So what is to follow is a letter that I wrote to Senator Blackwell of Mississippi back on January 30th, which is about a week ago. Um, we're recording this in early February. And I will say before I read the letter that since I wrote this letter, I don't think my letter actually had anything to do with this. Um, the midwife who had reached out and some of her colleagues had gone to the state Senate. They had a private meeting with Senator Kevin Blackwell and he let them rewrite the bill. So now they're working with Hermine Hayes Klein. Um, she is a very powerful attorney working in the human rights and childbirth world. And she's also been on the podcast. She's another dear friend of mine. She's also coming to the Twins Breach Conference. If you're interested in coming to hear her speak and to meet with her in person, uh, I'll put a link to the conference in the podcast description. But she also has a pretty big retainer fee. And so there is a sort of crowdsourced fundraising campaign that you can contribute to if these types of initiatives are, uh, you see them as valuable. You know, $5 from 100 people would cover her means. Well, from a thousand people, I guess fifty dollars from hundred people would cover her means retainer, and um, we also have a petition that's circulating, and we need to put public pressure. There is, needs to be a lot of people interested in uh, turning the tables here, right? If we, if if the state senator Kevin Blackwell of Mississippi is going to change his mind and honor a bill that is a little bit more representative of what they're hoping to do. In the state of Mississippi, then there needs to be a lot of eyes. There needs to be a lot of people in the room. And this is one way to do that if you're not able to fly to Mississippi and be with these midwives, which I'm not. I'm not able to do that. But I can lend my support and my experience and, if you want to call it expertise, sure, I can lend that to these initiatives. And I try to do my best to, to do that every single time it's asked of me. So. I got to writing and I started writing and I thought it would just be a one-page letter and then it got to two, three, it's now about nine pages. And it's signed by me, my friend and business partner, Sarah Rosser, Savannah Brown, who I mentioned, and Ashley Green, who's a CNM in Dallas, Texas. So here's the letter I wrote to Senator Kevin Blackwell of Mississippi. Through this letter, I hope to persuade you to consider the ramifications of passing Martin's Law, which will have the long-term consequences of worsening your state's maternity statistics by limiting the options to birthing families and widening the gap between in-hospital and out-of-hospital birth workers in the state of Mississippi. Nearly 10 out of every 1,000 babies born alive in the state of Mississippi will die. In your state, approximately 38.5% of babies are extracted through an incision in the abdomen. Out of every 100,000 live births in your state, 43 mothers will die. Of all 50 states, Mississippi ranks last in the three statistics that matter most to the families that you seek to protect. To be more granular in this assessment, the rates of both infant and maternal mortality are worse for non-Hispanic black women. The rate at which babies die in your state are dying. In, in the rate at which babies in your state are dying have been on the rise. With a sharper rise, let me start that again. The rate at which babies in your state are dying has been on the rise, with a sharper rise in the post-neonatal period between 28 and 364 days of life compared to the neonatal period between birth and 27 days of life. 
Nearly two-thirds of the women dying in your state due to pregnancy or birth-related causes identify as non-Hispanic black women. These numbers should be alarming, and I presume that through the ongoing legislative and policy-making process about which I know very little, you are hoping to course-correct for the future of pregnant mothers in your state. I am a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist, a fellow of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, an educator and a collaborative physician for out-of-hospital midwives around the United States. But most importantly, I am a father and a husband. My wife and I are fortunate enough to live in Louisville, Kentucky, where options as to where we give birth and who to hire as our birth team are plentiful. I was called to the laborious process of becoming a physician because of the mystery of childbirth. I can recall attending my first birth as a medical student and having my heart ripped open. Nearly a decade later, my wife and I welcomed our first and then our second children into the world. Penelope Luce came first, and she was born in the hospital. Everly Rosa came a few short years later, and my wife intuitively decided to have a home birth. If you have the privilege of attending births in any setting, you will be compelled to acknowledge a few things. The first is that birth is not a medical procedure and that pregnancy is not inherently a high-risk condition, despite what ACOG may insinuate. The second is that a variety of factors are out of our control, again, despite what ACOG may insinuate. This second acknowledgement requires closer inspection. As mortal beings, we do not have the luxury of living forever. Many would argue that a life well-lived is one in which we have crossed off our itemized bucket lists, raised a strong family, and left a legacy for generations to come. But this is not always in our control. Many would also argue, myself included, that sometimes babies pass away for unpredictable and unpreventable reasons. But the rate at which many obstetricians and politicians are intervening is unlikely to be the answer. Bear in mind that the vast network of neonatal intensive care units across the country are not being overwhelmed by babies transferred from the out-of-hospital setting, but rather predominantly by babies that are either A, preterm, or B, distressed by the myriad of interventions that have become routine in hospital-based maternity care protocols and policies across our nation. We have control of a few factors in pregnancy and childbirth that have demonstrated improvements in the outcomes with which your state is grappling. Worldwide, Interventions to minimize and mitigate postpartum hemorrhage and infection, for example, have been acknowledged by the World Health Organization and agencies such as ACOG to be effective means of reducing maternal and neonatal morbidity and mortality. Access to life-saving procedures, medications, and specialists is inarguably an important part of the path forward. But the poor maternity statistics in your state don't fully reflect other factors impacting maternity outcomes that are far more difficult to measure. Because birth isn't inherently a high-risk condition, an individual with power in policymaking must ask themselves why the families in their state have comparable rates of dying in childbirth as El Salvador, and worse rates than a multitude of other nations with less heavily financed healthcare systems, including Jordan, Cuba, Barbados, Tunisia, Uzbekistan, Sri Lanka, Thailand, and even war-torn West Bank and Gaza Strip. It might be superlative to even acknowledge that maternal mortality in the state of Mississippi is 10 times higher than the bulk of European nations, East Asia, and the Middle East. Clearly, well-funded hospitals and well-trained hospital staff should be one of the many foci in repairing your state's maternity system. But perhaps an additional important consideration that you may grapple with as you deliberate over SB 2080 is the negative impact that it may have on the options presented to families giving birth in your state. From what I understand, SB 2080 proposes greater restrictions on the practice of midwifery in your state. This bill has been nicknamed Martin's Law after a baby that died in a hospital several hours after transport in 2019 due to maternal exhaustion. Per the record, there were no signs of a pending crisis throughout the labor. 
As a father and a husband, the immense gravity of the loss of a child in birth is inconceivable, and fortunately these stories are rare. Yet headlines often over-report on cases in which babies or mothers die, and they tend to under-report on the vast majority of births that go exceedingly well outside of the hospital. As a thought experiment, I wonder what would happen to our national maternity statistics if, instead of creating policies based on the rare, albeit devastating, outcome of a fetal or neonatal demise, policymaking was collectively driven by the innumerable stories of women giving birth autonomously in rural communities under the care of midwives, particularly traditional and classical midwives who were called to this work through a lineage-based apprenticeship model. I fear that a solution to babies dying in the state of Mississippi would be exacerbated by Martin's Law, and I have a few suggestions as to what can be done through your policymaking process to impact your concerning maternity statistics with relation to prenatal care practitioners. Number one, base your assumptions around the aptitude of midwives on data rather than the cultural narrative that midwives are inferior to obstetricians. Two, invest in the training and autonomy of midwives. Three, invest in your hospital systems and the procedures and protocols that save lives in the rare emergency. And four, diversify your out-of-hospital workforce to meet the demands of your constituents, which are, quite simply, to be provided informed consent and support in their pregnancy decision-making process. I'm going to dig deeper now into these four suggestions. Suggestion one, midwifery in the public view has grappled with mischaracterization for millennia. In feudalistic societies on every continent, the wise women in villages cared for their birthing counterparts, in part due to the destitute poverty experienced by the vast majority of the citizenry. Over time, these women who cared for other women became very skilled in the task of supporting, intervening, and holding space for birth through empiricism. These traditions were passed down generationally, and by the turn of the 19th century, the midwife was far better equipped to support pregnancy and childbirth than the self-proclaimed physician-surgeons who were still married to outdated understandings of human physiology from antiquity. As recently as the early 20th century, most women were still seeking out grand midwives to support them through childbirth, but with the introduction of large philanthropic contributions to what is now known as, quote, modern medical education, birth was compelled to the hospital suites for those who could afford them, and this monopolization was further perpetuated by the mischaracterization of the humble midwives across our nation as lazy, incompetent, and dirty, particularly for black traditional midwives who are carrying forth generations of wisdom. This mixed characterization is slowly being reversed in our country as midwives have perennially demonstrated the highest quality of prenatal and postnatal care for the majority of birthing families. But policymakers play a role in further changing the narrative. Suggestion two, regardless of your disposition on the topic, women are going to seek out midwifery care at increasing rates. So it's incumbent on policymakers to ensure that this care meets the expectations and needs of birthing families. Midwives have consistently demonstrated that low intervention birth leads to better outcomes over time, especially when state and federal policymakers invest in their training and autonomy. Throughout history, this trend has held firm. In the United States, at the turn of the 20th century, midwives were being scorned for the incidence of uterine infections and neonatal ophthalmia. But instead of providing training and access to hand washing and eye drops, midwives were publicly admonished. This was not so in the United Kingdom. Parliament heavily invested in their midwives by establishing the Central Midwives Board in 1902, leading to a reduction in, in infant mortality from 151 in 1,000 in 1901 to 106 in 1,000 in uh, by 1910. Similar improvements were seen in maternal mortality. It is not my position that midwives need more or better training in present-day birth work in the United States, but if this is your primary issue with their care, 
then it's incumbent on you to support their skills, not to eradicate their practice. The same argument could be made even more passionately about modern-day obstetrics. In addition to improving access to midwives, supporting autonomous practice is also critical in meeting the needs of our birthing clients. I, for one, am not in favor of any individual hanging up their shingle and advertising experienced, comprehensive prenatal care without having done their due diligence, but these instances are far and few between. Furthermore, a woman has the right to choose any birth worker, regardless of what the public may deem, quote, experienced, provided that the birth worker in question is upfront about their training, experience, and limitations, and their client is satisfied with their credentials. Of note, investing in midwifery care has offered at least a part of the solution to many maternity care crises around the world, even in low- and middle-income countries. In the United States, we have pretended for far too long that state and federal policies, quote, protect families. This hasn't played out well, and it never will achieve the desired outcome. It is unreasonable to demand excellence from anybody wishing it isn't unreasonable to demand excellence from anybody wishing to sit with birth, but the state and federal policymakers, not to mention the three and four-letter organizations overseeing midwifery care, do not own the term midwife. From my experience in working with midwives across the country, they are more skilled in the handling of the vast majority of births, that is, I estimate a minimum of 85% of births being low risk, and perhaps bringing midwives into the conversation to better understand their needs and supporting birthing families would be more appropriate than sweeping regulations on their scope of practice and the legality around their practice. Suggestion three. In a 2017 report published in Health Affairs, an alarm was sounded. Quote, recent closures of rural obstetric units and entire hospitals have exacerbated concerns about access to care for more than 80 28, excuse me, 28 million women of reproductive age living in rural America. A variety of states have seen increased rates of home birth due to the closure of maternity units and hospitals over the past few decades. Home birth rates increased even more rapidly during the difficult years of SARS-CoV-2, as pregnant families were compelled to have their babies in out-of-hospital settings due to restrictions and limitations on prenatal care. The reality that you must face is that in rural counties across the United States, many of which are located in the state that you serve, many women have no option but to choose to have their babies at home under the care of doulas and midwives. Suggestion four. For many families in the United States, a planned pregnancy is generally met with a sense of joy and inspiration. Unfortunately, for many non-Hispanic black women in the United States, other emotions like anxiety and fear may arise due to the historical evidence of black women being mistreated and abused within our medical system and through clinical research. I put research in quotes referring to Tuskegee, of course. A black woman's pain is often left untreated and their complaints ignored by otherwise well-intentioned healthcare professionals. The lack of respect for people of color has led to worse outcomes and a nearly three-fold greater risk of non-Hispanic black women dying in our nation from childbirth compared to their non-Hispanic white counterparts. These are facts, not opinions. Mississippi needs to also focus on diversifying their birth-related workforce. Due to, the, due to the historical violence against black women in hospitals, and given that most obstetricians or hospital-based birth attendants are white, most women who identify as black will seek out the care of somebody who, with comparable lived experience, namely non-Hispanic black women, regardless of the passing of Martin's Law. Black midwives often embrace the path of traditional midwifery, which is gaining ground in the midwifery community at large, given that the passing down of techniques and traditions of space holdings, of space holding, have demonstrated in a variety of manners to be superior in the comprehensive experience of giving birth. We must consider not just the health and life of mother and baby, but also the mental, emotional, spiritual, and otherwise immeasurable components of childbirth. 
Families in general, and black women in particular, are experiencing devastating mental and emotional disturbances due to the lack of access to birth workers of color. Given that birth isn't a medical procedure, obstetricians and policymakers have more to gain from embracing these traditions than eradicating them through initiatives like Martin's Law. By listening to the stories of so many black women and their midwives pertaining to the challenges and fears of surrendering to the medical system, you might appreciate just how crucial it is that the birthing families of Mississippi have a right not just to higher level neonatal intensive care, well-equipped maternity units, and well-trained obstetricians, but also that they have the right to choose who attends their birth. And given your state demographics, the hard reality is that many of the women you are looking to support would be best served through the ability to choose a black traditional midwife to guide them on their prenatal journey. The alternative path, whereby you compel women to seek out the rare maternity unit willing to treat them with respect, dignity, and autonomy in decision-making, is fraught with error. Systemic racism has emerged as an independent risk factor for women of color in the published literature. It's not her black skin that predisposes her to higher rates of preeclampsia, cesarean section, and death in maternity units across our country. It is the underlying chronic stress of living in a society into which are woven firm threads of our legacy of racism, particularly in the Deep South. You have some very hard decisions to make on behalf of your constituents. Obstetricians and other healthcare providers are familiar with the nuances of informed consent, but it bears repeating in a straightforward way. Informed consent consists of counseling around the risks, benefits, and alternatives to every health-related decision. It is then our job as birth attendants to support our clients' decisions. We may not agree with their decisions, and they may even decline our recommendations. But placing a birthing family at the center of their decision-making process is critical to improving our maternity statistics nationally, especially in states that fall well below the average. A family cannot make an informed decision, whether consent or dissent, without being presented with the risks and benefits of all possible options. Coercion, which many would argue is the antithesis of informed consent, in maternity care can be perpetuated in several ways. It most commonly appears through the selection of language that would inspire a woman to choose a path that we might prefer them to take. For example, your baby might die if you don't accept our recommendations. But coercion can also be perpetuated in more insidious ways. Stripping a woman of the possibility of having birth on her own terms by limiting their options is still coercion. If she has to choose between options A and B as outlined by policymakers or hospital administrators, and making it impossible for them to choose option C due to midwifery licensing restrictions or otherwise, is still coercive by nature. The preferences or prejudice of policymakers plays no role in exercising the fundamental principles of bioethics. In many states, limiting the scope of practice of midwives has led to a rise in what is known as free birth, whereby a birthing family is compelled to birth without any birth attendant. Fortunately, these decisions often still lead to, quote, good, out good birth outcomes, as pregnancy is not usually a disease process begging for interventions offered by obstetricians. But it is not safe to assume that every woman who chooses to free birth does so by choice, but rather by necessity given their limited options in birth attendant. If you pass Martin's law and further criminalize the practice of a variety of midwives in Mississippi, you will witness a worsening of birth outcomes over time due to one, women choosing to give birth without a birth attendant, and two, midwives choosing to serve their clients despite the law, resulting in apprehension to transfer to unfriendly hospital providers if the unlikely, albeit very possible, need for higher level, level care were to arise. In summary, working with midwives and investing in training and autonomy of those who are called to this work will inevitably lead to better maternity outcomes in the state of Mississippi. 
reducing the stress and anxiety of your rural citizens by providing access to greater, more relatable options in choosing a birth worker is a low-risk, high-benefit proposition, and passing Martin's Law, which restricts the practice and autonomy of your midwives, will benefit nobody. Put your birthing families in the center of their care, ask them what they desire, and the rest will sort itself out. You, Senator Blackwell, are a part of co-creating a new maternity care model in the United States. I appreciate your attention to this matter. Sincerely, me, Savannah, Sarah, and Ashley. So let that sit with you for a little while, and I will include a link to read this essay and share this essay, which is really just the letter. <laughs> And um, we'll put a link to the crowdfunding campaign and to a petition. And I encourage you to check out all of those things, share these stories. The next state that comes up will receive a very, very similar letter as this. Um, because these are frankly just facts. Like let's just present the data to the people that need the data and maybe they'll come around. And if more people are standing behind some of these uh, initiatives that are not being presented uh, to the Mississippi State Legislature, but are being um, perhaps pushed by people that look like you and, and, and work like you, birth workers, it's more and more likely, far more likely to be successful. So I appreciate you listening. If you have any questions, please reach out. I'm found on Instagram at Nathan Riley OBGYN, or you can submit a uh, can write me a letter on my website, which is belovedholistics.com. And um, I thank you. Much love to you and yours. And I will see you next time on the Holistic OE2N podcast. Bye-bye.